Book First, Chapter First, Section Three of In the Days of the Comet. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Felicity Campbell. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter One, Section Three that made parload put down the opera glass and look at me it's a bad time to change just now he said after a little pause rawdon had said as much in a less agreeable tone but with parload i felt always a disposition to the heroic note i'm tired i said of humdrum drudgery for other men one may as well starve one's body out of a place as to starve one's soul in one. I don't know about that altogether, began Parload slowly. And with that we began one of our interminable conversations, one of those long, wandering, intensely generalising, diffusely personal talks that will be dear to the hearts of intelligent youths until the world comes to an end. The change has not abolished that anyhow. It would be an incredible feat of memory for me now to recall all that meandering haze of words. Indeed, I recall scarcely any of it, though its circumstances and atmosphere stand out, a sharp, clear picture in my mind. I posed after my manner and behaved very foolishly, no doubt, a wounded, smarting egotist, and Parload played his part of the philosopher, preoccupied with the deeps we were presently abroad walking through the warm summer's night and talking all the more freely for that but one thing that i said i can remember i wish at times said i with a gesture at the heavens that comet of yours or some such thing would indeed strike this world and wipe us all away strikes wars tumults loves jealousies and all the wretchedness of life. Ah, said Parload, and the thought seemed to hang about him. It could only add to the miseries of life, he said irrelevantly, when presently I was discoursing of other things. What would? Collision with a comet. It would only throw things back, it would only make what was left of life more savage than it is at present. But why should anything be left of life? said I. That was our style, you know, and meanwhile we walked together up the narrow street outside his lodging, up the stepway and the lanes toward Clayton Crest and the high road. But my memories carry me back so effectually to those days before the change that I forget that now all these places have been altered beyond recognition, that the narrow street and the stepway and the view from Clayton Crest and indeed all the world in which I was born and bred and made has vanished clean away out of space and out of time and well-nigh out of the imagination of all those who are younger by a generation than I. 
you cannot see as i can see the dark empty way between the mean houses the dark empty way lit by a bleary gas lamp at the corner you cannot feel the hard checkered pavement under your boots you cannot mark the dimly lit windows here and there and the shadows upon the ugly and often patched and crooked blinds of the people cooped within nor can you presently pass the beer-house with its brighter gas and its queer screening windows nor get a whiff of foul air and foul language from its door nor see the crumpled furtive figure some rascal child that slinks past us down the steps we crossed the longer street up which a clumsy steam train vomiting smoke and sparks made its clangorous way and adown which one saw the greasy brilliance of shop fronts and the naphtha flares of hawkers barrows dripping fire into the night a hazy movement of people swayed along that road and we heard the voice of an itinerant preacher from a waste place between the houses you cannot see these things as i can see them nor can you figure unless you know the pictures that great artist hyde has left the world the effect of the great hoarding by which we passed lit below by a gas-lamp and towering up to a sudden sharp black edge against the pallid sky those hoardings they were the brightest coloured things in all that vanished world upon them in successive layers of paste and paper all the rough enterprises of that time joined in chromatic discord pill vendors and preachers theatres and charities marvellous soaps and astonishing pickles typewriting machines and sewing machines mingled in a sort of visualised clamour and passing that there was a muddy lane of cinders a lane without a light that used its many puddles to borrow a star or so from the sky we splashed along unheeding as we talked then across the allotments a wilderness of cabbages and evil-looking sheds past a gaunt abandoned factory and so to the high road the high road ascended in a curve past a few houses and a beer-house or so and round until all the valley in which four industrial towns lay crowded and confluent was overlooked i will admit that with the twilight there came a spell of weird magnificence over all that land and brooded on it until dawn the horrible meanness of its details was veiled the hutches that were homes the bristling multitudes of chimneys the ugly patches of unwilling vegetation amidst the makeshift fences of barrel stave and wire the rusty scars that framed the opposite ridges where the iron ore was taken and the barren mountains of slag from the blast furnaces were veiled the reek and boiling smoke and dust from foundry pot-bank and furnace transfigured and assimilated by the night the dust-laden atmosphere that was grey oppression through the day became at sundown a mystery of 
deep translucent colours of blues and purples of sombre and vivid reds of strange bright clearnesses of green and yellow athwart the darkling sky each upstart furnace when its monarch's sun had gone crowned itself with flames the dark cinder heaps began to glow with quivering fires and each pot-bank squatted rebellious in a volcanic coronet of light the empire of the day broke into a thousand feudal baronies of burning coal the minor streets across the valley picked themselves out with gas lamps of faint yellow that brightened and mingled at all the principal squares and crossings with the greenish pallor of incandescent mantles and the high cold glare of the electric arc the interlacing railways lifted bright signal boxes over their intersections and signal stars of red and green and rectangular constellations the trains became articulated black serpents breathing fire moreover high overhead like a thing put out of reach and near forgotten parload had rediscovered a realm that was ruled by neither sun nor furnace the universe of stars this was the scene of many a talk we two had held together and if in the daytime we went right over the crest and looked westward there was farmland there were parks and great mansions the spire of a distant cathedral and sometimes when the weather was near raining the crests of remote mountains hung clearly in the sky beyond the range of sight indeed out beyond there was checks hill i felt it there always and in the darkness more than i did by day checks hill and nettie and to us two youngsters as we walked along the cinder path beside the rutted road and argued out our perplexities it seemed that this ridge gave us compendiously a view of our whole world there on the one hand in a crowded darkness about the ugly factories and workplaces the workers herded together ill-clothed ill-nourished ill-taught badly and expensively served at every occasion in life uncertain even of their insufficient livelihood from day to day the chapels and churches and public houses swelling up amidst their wretched homes like saprophytes amidst a general corruption and on the other in space freedom and dignity scarce heeding the few cottages as overcrowded as they were picturesque in which the labourers festered lived the landlords and masters who owned pot-banks and forge and farm and mine far away distant beautiful irrelevant from out of a little cluster of second-hand bookshops ecclesiastical residences and the inns and incidentals of a decaying market-town the cathedral of lowchester pointed a beautiful unemphatic spire to vague incredible skies so it seemed to us that the whole world was planned in those youthful first impressions we saw everything simple as young men will we had our angry confident solutions and whosoever would criticise them was a friend of the robbers 
It was a clear case of robbery we held, visibly so. There in those great houses lurked the landlord and the capitalist, with his scoundrel the lawyer, with his cheat the priest, and we others were all the victims of their deliberate villainies. No doubt they winked and chuckled over their rare wines, amidst their dazzling, wickedly dressed women, and plotted further grinding for the faces of the poor. And amidst all the squalor on the other hand, amidst brutalities, ignorance and drunkenness, suffered multitudinously their blameless victim, the working man. And we, almost at the first glance, had found all this out, it had merely to be asserted now, with sufficient rhetoric and vehemence, to change the face of the whole world. The working man would arise in the form of a labour party, and with young men like Parload and myself to represent him, and come to his own, and then... Then the robbers would get it hot, and everything would be extremely satisfactory. Unless my memory plays me strange tricks, that does no injustice to the creed of thought and action that Parload and I held as the final result of human wisdom. We believed it with heat, and rejected with heat the most obvious qualification of its harshness. At times in our great talks we were full of heady hopes for the near triumph of our doctrine, more often our mood was hot resentment at the wickedness and stupidity that delayed so plain and simple a reconstruction of the order of the world. Then we grew malignant, and thought of barricades and significant violence. I was very bitter, I know, upon this night of which I am now particularly telling, and the only face upon the hydra of capitalism and monopoly that I could see at all clearly smiled exactly as old Rawdon had smiled when he refused to give me more than a paltry twenty shillings a week. I wanted intensely to salve my self-respect by some revenge upon him, and I felt that if that could be done by slaying the hydra, I might drag its carcass to the feet of Nettie and settle my other trouble as well. What do you think of me now, Nettie? That, at any rate, comes near enough to the quality of my thinking then, for you to imagine how I gesticulated and spouted to Parload that night. You figure us as little black figures, unprepossessing in the outline, set in the midst of that desolating night of flaming industrialism, and my little voice with a rhetorical twang, protesting, denouncing, you will consider those notions of my youth poor, silly, violent stuff, particularly if you are of the younger generation born since the change, you will be of that opinion. Nowadays the whole world thinks clearly, thinks with deliberation, pellucid certainties. You find it impossible to imagine how any other thinking could have been possible. Let me tell you, then how you can bring yourself to something like the condition of our former state. In the first place, you must get yourself out of health by unwise drinking and eating, and out of condition by neglecting your exercise. Then you must contrive to be worried very much and made very anxious and uncomfortable, 
and then you must work very hard for four or five days and for long hours every day at something too petty to be interesting too complex to be mechanical and without any personal significance to you whatever this done get straightway into a room that is not ventilated at all and that is already full of foul air and there set yourself to think out some very complicated problem in a very little while you will find yourself in a state of intellectual muddle annoyed impatient snatching at the obvious presently in choosing and rejecting conclusions haphazard try to play chess under such conditions and you will play stupidly and lose your temper try to do anything that taxes the brain or temper and you will fail now the whole world before the change was as sick and feverish as that it was worried and overworked and perplexed by problems that would not get stated simply that changed and evaded solution it was in an atmosphere that had corrupted and thickened past breathing there was no thorough cool thinking in the world at all there was nothing in the mind of the world anywhere but half-truths hasty assumptions hallucinations and emotions nothing i know it seems incredible that already some of the younger men are beginning to doubt the greatness of the change our world has undergone but read read the newspapers of that time every age becomes mitigated and a little ennobled in our minds as it recedes into the past it is the part of those who like myself have stories of that time to tell to supply by a scrupulous spiritual realism some antidote to that glamour end of book one chapter one section three recording by felicity campbell book one for me dot com whanganui new zealand